Hi, everyone. We'll go ahead and get this kicked off. Uh, we'll try to hit all the good questions early so y'all can leave and go to the thing on open carry. Um, <laughs> no, thanks very much for showing up uh, this afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Ben Philpot. I'm a senior political reporter for KUT News in Austin, uh, also the co-host of a podcast on the 2016 presidential race called The Ticket. That's my plug for y'all to go listen to it. Find it on iTunes, please. Uh, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very uh, happy to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival and Higher Ed and the Legislature. With our panel, uh, we have Richmond State Representative and House Higher Education Committee Chair John Zerwas. Uh, Austin State Representative, this is in order of where I wrote it down, not the way they're sitting, by the way. Austin State Representative and uh, Vice Chair of House, of House Higher Education, Donna Howard. Texas Commissioner of Higher Education, Raymond Paredes. Uh, Amarillo State Senator, luckiest man alive, and chair of the Senate Higher Education Committee, Kel Seliger, and Dallas State Senator and Senate Higher Education Committee Vice Chair, Royce West down there on the you end. You are talking about being married to my wife, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, nice. That's nice exactly right. Thank you. Uh, our discussion here is going to last about 60 minutes. Uh, we'll have 15 to 20 minutes at the end for questions. Um, so uh, I guess we'll just kick it off here. Uh, by the way, I was not able to find a printer. My questions are here. This is not the Alabama A&M game that I'm watching. So <laughs> yes, it just, is. just in case you were wondering. Um, although as an Alabama graduate, if anybody wants to jump up and tell me the score every now and then, that's fine. Uh, please silence your phones, though. Uh, and, but if you are going to tweet uh, all the amazing things that we're going to say today, the hashtag is TTF. Um, and just so you know, uh, I am going to get to the 800-pound Smith & Wesson in the room uh, just a little bit in this conversation, but there are actually other things to talk about in terms of higher education and the state of Texas. So um, why don't we kick off with, let's see, um, uh, here we go, okay, here we go. Uh, both the House and Senate tried to work on fixes to Hazelwood. Um, the scholarship program this time around. Uh, the debate turned very emotional uh, and nothing happened. Uh, do, are we gonna try again in 2017? Is there a better approach than what happened in this last session? And I guess maybe we should explain first of all, I guess what Hazelwood is, who it, who it pays for and everything. You looking to me to kick this one off? Sure, kick okay. it off. All right, glad to, uh, since I was the victim of that in the house, and so it's <laughs> yes. probably appropriate to, yeah. for me to kind of kick off on that. So, yeah. first of all, I, Hazelwood is a program which uh, allows our veterans to have their tuition paid for and uh, some costs uh, uh, by virtue of the of service in the, in the military, uh, and really not a whole lot of service uh, from the state program. They, they kind of have some fairly minimal service, a deployment, and they've earned uh, their education up to right now it's 150 credit hours uh, that can be used but in texas uniquely the hazelwood act also allows the, opp the opportunity to pass that on to legacy uh, family members uh, children and that's where we're seeing a trim and that was passed in 2009 i voted for it i bet everybody here voted for it and based on the information we had we thought that it was a fiscally prudent thing to do um, even though we knew it would cost some money uh, you know, fast forward uh, several years, we find our universities uh, absorbing a tremendous amount of these costs as a consequence of this without the, without the state uh, putting up a whole lot of money, frankly. Uh, we do budget some money for the provision of the Hazelwood exemption, but uh, it, it does not in any way come close to what the costs have blown out of proportion for. Uh, and so, you know, this was something that was felt to be needed to be taken up by the, uh, by the legislature this year. We heard a strong sense of urgency from 
our universities. Uh, the Senate, uh, you know, kicked this off, uh, being led by Senator Birdwell, which is obviously an ideal person to, to take this on, being a decorated veteran and understanding clearly the benefits that come both at a federal and at a state level. And did a tremendous job, I think, of uh, laying this out before his Senate colleagues and getting it passed out and sent over to us in the House. Uh, we took it in the House with every expectation that we would uh, basically send back the same bill that they sent us, even though we didn't start off in that direction. Uh, what happened between the time that the Senate um, passed uh, what I thought was a very reasonable measure in order to rein in the cost of Hazelwood, not get rid of Hazelwood, but rein it in, um, is that there was a lot of opportunity for others to mobilize, uh, you know, a, an effort to try to bring that down. And I, I will say, and personally, I think there was a lot of mischaracterizations of the program in the House in terms of what we were trying to do. And as a consequence, there were uh, just not any support to move forward where we were. And so the the perspective from my, my, my viewpoint being the one that was carrying the, uh, sponsoring that bill in the House was uh, let's pull back, uh, let's you know, call a timeout on this thing, which we did by coming up with some alternative and see if we could conference something in the meantime. Uh, there really was no middle ground on this as we, as we looked at it going down the road and we decided that uh, this is going to need to be left for another day. I think that the crisis situation with the regard to this uh, at the universities needs to be very well communicated with the legislators in the future. I think this really needs to be a burning platform out there in order for there to be a willingness by legislators to take this on and do something in, in the spirit of preserving the entire program. Not just what we're talking about in terms of legacy, but preserving the entire program. That's the magnitude uh, that this has blown out of, has blown up in terms of cost to our university. I think we are very much supportive of the veteran and supporting the veterans' uh, educational opportunities by virtue of the service they provided. I think we have to bring some guardrails into play when it comes to the legacy portion of the program. And the universities have indicated to us that if we could do that, and if we could do much of what we did uh, in the bill that we were exploring this last legislative session, we could in fact preserve um, the Hazelwood program in a way that I think the legislature had his every intent to do and would be done in a fiscally prudent way. Uh, there was some, there were some, uh, some debate during it on um, the idea of whether or not uh, you had enough information back to make this decision. Was there, uh, were there conflicting reports about how much money it was costing, how much it wasn't costing? Did that all get hammered out? I mean, do we feel like you have uh, good intelligence on how much the universities are having to spend on this and what you're looking for in terms of cutting that back? We, uh, I felt like we did. Um, I, I think we heard that over and over that we had, you know, pretty good, you know, evidence of what this cost was, was. and you can certainly play it out a number of different ways. Uh, but the bottom line, there was a tremendous amount of revenue that was, uh, that was not being obtained, that was being transferred on to the entirety of the others, the balance of the student body who was paying for this. And again, I think within me, within a reasonable uh, amount that that's, that's not a problem. People, have, people are willing to do that. Uh, but what we're seeing is, is a significant amount of the tuition that is paid by um, the individuals that aren't getting this benefit is continuing to rise. And it's gonna continue to rise if the program you know, is on the trajectory. The quality of the information was brought, uh, there was, there was, brought, was brought into question by some, and my opinion was it was brought into question with the full intent of just 
you know, bringing this down uh, without really, a, a, I think, a true sense of what the quality of the information was. I think Senator, Senator Birdwell took that information, took the same data that we were receiving and uh, was able to lay this out uh, in the Senate in a convincing way uh, that they were able to, you know, garner the votes that were needed in the Senate to bring it over to us. So just if any of the rest of you want to jump in, do you feel like this is something, obviously the way it kind of ended, how it got really emotional in both the House and Senate on this uh, debate, is this something uh, there will be stomach for again in 2017 or maybe a need to do? Without question, we're going to have to address this issue. And the reality is that we depend upon the Higher Education Coordinating Board to give us numbers and needless to say the Legislative Budget Board. It's something that we're going to have to deal with during the next legislative session. I I agree with the Representative Zerwas, we, all of us up here, want to make certain that we take care of our veterans, but we're going to have to put some parameters on uh, on the program in order to make it fiscally solvent for years to come. The, the, oh, sorry, Commissioner. The commitment of the state of Texas has to be as strong as the commitment of those veterans to this country. Uh, this was meant to be the state version of the GI Bill and, and, and far outstrips the things that the GI Bill did. We didn't know what the price tag was, and I think Senator West and I were on the working group with Senators Vandeput and Duncan when we first did this. Um, you know, we've got some options here, but the universities are getting huge bills. It doesn't matter whether you're in College Station or Lubbock or Killeen, it's backbreaking, and, and it has other implications. So if we have this student who is, is getting the benefits that we provide under Hazelwood, we, we have to raise this student's tuition. But if we then regulate tuition at, at the legislative level, then what do we do? Then it's based uh, strictly upon state appropriation to higher ed. And that brings in another side of the issue. Did you say regulate? Did I say what? Did you say regulate tuition? Well, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> I've got that here. I got a question on that. <laughs> Commissioner, you want to? I was going to say that uh, the numbers that, uh, that the legislature had to work with were accurate in terms of uh, current costs. Uh, we, uh, we you know, him, I think your microphone fell off. I'm sorry. Let me just hold it. We, <laughs> um, we gathered information about uh, Hazelwood expenditures uh, sometime before the session. As we got closer to the session, we asked the institutions to double-check their numbers, and there were some revisions, but uh, I believe that the numbers that, uh, that the legislature ultimately worked with were accurate. I think a lot of the confusion was about the projections of the cost two, three, four, five years down the road, and that's where the, the, uh, the uh, uh, predictions varied wildly and dramatically, but uh, the numbers the legislature worked with were accurate. And what I want to say, Ben, is uh, that this is an example, an example of what happens, I think, when the legislature, good intentions or not, creates legislation to do something, not always aware of the consequences, in this case, the cost and what might happen, and uh, expects the institutions that we put this legislation upon to absorb the cost. And we, we've created some funding, but nowhere near what this program has cost even before the legacy was in place. And this is something that I think uh, in education in particular, both pub ed and higher ed, we've had some, I think, 
credible complaints leveled against us trying to do things at the legislature, expecting these institutions to implement things and yet not providing the funding with which they can do it. So the, the, the discussion that we had this session and what we're talking about right now, I think we all realize that this is much more costly than was originally envisioned, that we either need to fund it or we need to figure out a way to make it affordable because we've imposed a huge burden now on our higher education institutions much greater than anybody ever anticipated. Well, and I think that uh, might as well just head right into tuition deregulation and possibility of re-regulation while we're on this. Um, you know, back in 2003, the legislature reduced what it gave to colleges in exchange for uh, more flexibility in setting tuitions. Uh, it was talked about during 2015. It's on the Senate interim charges again for 2017. What would re-regulation look like? Re-regulation looked exactly like the bill that I introduced in the Senate, but it had tuition based upon uh, certain methods of progress, and they were two-year and four-year completion and total, uh, uh, total degrees granted and uh, all, all sorts of things like that. People actually completing when they're starting four-year and six-year graduation, all those things that, that we were willing to grant in this bill, inflation, which nobody can help, and then if anybody wanted to increase it, they had to get, I think, five or six of the 11 criterion to show real progress, real production, if you will. And uh, that was a re-regulation, but, but one that uh, was along some sort of criteria rather than just simple, the, the, the political nuance of it. The performance-based. That, that, it was performance-based tuition increases, yeah. And I'd say the, the senator and I think the Senate in general spent quite a bit of time, did a much deeper dive on this than we did in the House. Uh, there's always deadlines and things that you have to work with. Uh, this, the bill came over to the House side. I sponsored it. Uh, we looked at it and thought it was a really a good bill. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get it out there and get it into a place where we could really have that that, that very significant conversation that needed to occur in order to consider this. Because it, it is a big change from where we, we've been. But I think it's an appropriate change because the cost of education is, is rising. And if we talk to different people, they'll say, well, the cost is rising, but it's only rising for a certain group. Really, the majority of people are t being taken care of. And I say, well, that's what we need to talk about. And, and the deep dive can occur in the interim here as it's uh, already on a Senate charge, and, and I believe it's on a House charge, uh, although I haven't seen that yet. But it's, uh, it's, I think we're going to have the opportunity during the interim to do a deep dive and, and let the House and the Senate kind of get on, on the same page, you know, on this and get a running start at it in the legislative session. And as you, as you well know, we already have it. And um, uh, Commissioner Panetti's has uh, been, I guess, carrying the flag of performance-based funding for probably the last five years now, right? It's been at least three sessions. At least three sessions, right. And, and it's finally starting to take hold. It, it took hold in terms of the community colleges, in terms of the 90-10 uh, formula, and, and now uh, the Seliger, the, the and I think I co-sponsored that bill with you in the Senate. Yes. Um, and so it's going to be a bipartisan effort. So we do need to, as Zerwa uh, said, take a deep dive in both House and Senate during the interim on this particular issue, because here's the, here's the deal. If I'm going to be blamed by my constituents for the cost of tuition, I need to have more input into it and just um, uh, basically saying yes to the nominees of the Board of Regents for the various institutions around here. But what, I, what I'm concerned about here still is the fact that, uh, you know, are we going to 
offer to re-regulate at the same level of funding that we were operating under prior to the deregulation. Because certainly over the past, I don't know how many years, the state's share of the investment in higher ed has diminished. And in fact, this last session, we thankfully increased funding for all of our higher education institutions by 3%. But when we asked the Legislative Budget Board and appropriations to answer questions about what would we need to do, to do in order to get these institutions back to their high watermark prior to 2011 cuts, it may not have been immediately prior, it may have been even further back toward re to deregulation. Uh, so we increased them all by 3%. We were told that the four-year institutions and uh, the community colleges would have need, needed to be increased by 17% and the health relateds by 30%. So, you know, in, in terms of this discussion, I'm not saying we shouldn't have it or shouldn't do it, but I think it's got to also look at, so what is, what is the state's investment going to be if we're gonna be talking about uh, regulating tuition again, when indeed, my understanding though I wasn't here at the time, is that that occurred partially to alleviate the state of that responsibility. We're going to take it back on and say we're going to tell you what you can do with tuition, and we've got to have the state putting some more skin in the game. So, and, and my response to that, even though, my, and I'm and I'm welcome the discussion. The reality is, higher education is going to be competing with other priorities in the state, and we have to do our best to make certain that we um, provide the resources necessary for higher education without uh, making it so burdensome on the families that have to um, pay that tuition or the students that have to go out and get the tuition. We know based on a lot of studies that the reason a lot of kids don't persevere or complete their higher education is because of financial aid. And even though we did a great job in terms of financial aid, just leg legislative session, we did about 62 point something million for Texas grants, there's still uh, a gap, if you will, in terms of providing the financial aid necessary. So getting into this issue, doing that, I welcome that. Uh, in a way, they're, they're kind of different issues. Mm -hmm. and, and clearly we have to deal with them both, and hopefully we will, will today. And, and clearly our funding responsibility is, is one thing. But what we saw when tuition was deregulated, I think, in 93, was we saw these big escalations, far greater than inflation than any, anything else. Clearly the public was dissatisfied with that. What this says simply is that on the university's discretionary side, if they want more, they're going to have to give more. That being the, the results along the 11 criteria that we sent. Well, I wanted to ask about the idea of the, the performance-based component of that uh, uh, funding because uh, I remember, I think it was 2007 legislative session, Governor Perry had a large press conference with all the regents of A&M and UT behind him rolling out his idea for you know, some performance-based uh, funding for the universities. And they all stood there and everyone was smiling and clapping. And when Governor Perry left, the reporters would go up and talk to the regents and they all said, oh yeah, this isn't happening. Um, is there is there uh, more of an appetite now, or is this not that not that things have to be popular, especially when you're trying to talk about you know how to give funding to the universities? But well, I think I think my conversations with the universities on this has been, and again, uh, it wasn't over uh, the formality of a bill that was being considered as much as it was just let's have a conversation about this. Is the the universities are are receptive to it, uh, but they also recognize that you know UT. A&M differ from University of North Texas, University of Houston, SFA, Sam Houston, all these other uh, uh, universities out there. And, and they just have to have that ability to recognize what, what, what are the unique circumstances, the population that they're trying to educate 
are there and what kind of criteria they're going to be held to. Now, I think they had that input into your bill, Senator, yes. and I think that there was a sense of comfort that, you know, we could we can make this work. Um, and so that that's the receptiveness I've seen. Now, that, you know, the, the 2007, I think you said that was uh, that I believe quite a number of years ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, people have had a chance to digest this a little bit, you know, and sometimes when you have a chance to digest, it doesn't cause as much dyspepsia and stuff. So you can figure you can figure out how you win in that deal, you know, but at the same time, improve the, the ultimate performance. I'm optimistic because the, the, the participation of university leadership, they helped us develop the criterion. You can't hold all the institutions to, to the same criteria because it takes an example of Texas A&M and West Texas A&M. Clearly, if you look at first year retention at Texas A&M, which is very high, at West Texas A&M it's lower because you've got more people who have to work full time and go to school and, and people having kids and things like that, starting college at, at an older age. The, all those universities are different. We have to have a system that serves them all, but not along the same criteria because neither they nor their students are the same. Uh, you know, when uh, I kind of joked at the beginning about it, I'm surprised people are here because there's a gun thing going on somewhere else. But, you know, if you if you talked to people, uh, if you just kind of quiz them on the street about what was the biggest thing that happened in higher education this session, they quite possibly would say campus carry. But it seems like uh, uh, one of the biggest things was the finally passing tuition revenue bonds. Right. Um, you know, right. What, what, how, what kind of feedback are you getting from those schools that finally after, you know, I f honestly forget how many years it's been, but several years. It's been, what, about seven? Since 2006. I mean, yeah. most of the schools, most of the schools are, uh, are, are welcoming that the legislature and the governor has finally said, uh, we're going to put some money out there, about $237 million in debt service for $3. billion worth of tuition revenue or capital improvement projects. They welcome that because of their facility needs. And needless to say, uh, if we have those facility needs for maintenance and also uh, uh, renovations and new uh, uh, buildings. And so uh, everyone's um, been pretty receptive to that. I would say they're close to ecstatic about it. Close to ecstatic. Yeah, pretty much. Well, why don't we just say they're ecstatic about it? I was trying to go over that. One of the things that to remember in this deal, and this is, this is where part of the criticism came in, in executing the, the uh, TRB, was is is that there, there's new ways of learning. There's things that we didn't have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and that the opportunity for people to learn online and, you know, work without the, the, the bricks and mortars that are required in the campus setting. You know, we would ask each of the universities uh, as they came through, did you, have you considered this in your request for capital projects that there is a really kind of a, a change going on in how people learn and what are the real needs for these capital projects. And, and every one of them said yes, uh, that, that absolutely that's been incorporated into what they've determined their capital needs to be. Uh, but there are, it's just a fact that if we're going to attract some of the top level scientists and, and educators in this country to Texas, there are certain things that we have to have in play. And those certain things happen right. to be capital projects that, that are in place. And when we do that, and if we do that, um, uh, we're, we're going to see, I think, the best and the brightest come to Texas uh, to you know, uh, bring us their, their, the resources that they have. And those, those are very, very significant resources. So how about, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, that's one of the best points when we talk about the evolution of, of, of higher education. Texas Southern had a library largely destroyed in a hurricane. And so they came to us at the other 63 universities and wanted to go back and rebuild the building, not as a library, 
the day of, of just repositories of books is over. But as a learning and educational and counseling center that's going to touch on an awful lot of things, but just simply reviewing text and things like that. The, 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 the library of the past, the ones that we all went to when we went to the library, Royce. <laughs> no, you and I did not go. I went. <laughs> <laughs> the, those days are past. Well, uh, uh, speaking of bringing the best and the brightest, how about uh, Governor Abbott's uh, uh, plan that he wanted for uh, enticing the Nobel laureates to come to Texas? Uh, how, that was one of his uh, you know, big things that got through during this session. How do you feel like that's, uh, impl how is implementation of that beginning? How do you feel like this is something that we're going to, see some returns on over two years or? I, I believe that we are. I mean, I, I, I just looked at UT Southwest in, in Dallas and all of the Nobel laureates that we've been able to attract to that institution of, uh, uh, actually it's a, obviously it's a medical school. And I think that that's just gonna tip of the iceberg. And I think the governor's commitment to taking some of those dollars from some of those other funds and jumping it into that fund was a, uh, was a novel idea that's gonna prove uh, uh, worthy of uh, future successes in the state of Texas. I'm, I'm totally committed. What, yeah, if you look at what we have uh, invested, okay, we've got the governor's fund to attract Nobel laureates. That's not a small sum of change not out there. We, we enhanced all the research funding, and specifically the TRIP funding, trip the funding. research incentive program, so that we could, one, you know, live up to what we promised before, you know, but also to retain that so that these emerging universities have the opportunity to escalate their game and move into the top tier. Uh, and, and I think we, we need to not forget, because this is something that, that still comes a lot into higher ed, is the secret funding and what has been able to happen with those secret funds that have been used to attract the best and the brightest. Ron DePino and MD Anderson will tell you, uh, Jim Allison, who is probably the, the most notable person in cancer research right now in terms of immunotherapy, uh, came to MD Anderson as a consequence of the secret funding. So if you look at the state of Texas and, and the amount of money that we have really sort of funneled into higher education via research activity, uh, it's significant, especially when you look around the country and see what what's going on, which is much more of a retraction. I want to be careful about patting ourselves in the back too much about these very high-end deal because what does it do for Stephen F. Austin and Midwestern State and University of Texas Permian Basin? While we're concentrating on the very high-end and the research, all the attraction of federal funds, are we paying as much attention and, and placing as much emphasis upon the education of the next generation of Texans that's going to happen in all the places besides MD Anderson? So, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I want to follow up a piggyback on what Senator Selger said. Uh, it, it's uh, I, I very, uh, very enthusiastically support uh, the governor's initiative to bring more top researchers to Texas. We clearly need them. Uh, we used to cite uh, data a couple of years ago. The, the circumstances changed, so this, this point is no longer true. But up until about two or three years ago, the University of California at Berkeley had more members of the National Academies of Science and Health and uh, Engineering than all the institutions in Texas put together. And, uh, and, and that number is only changed in the past couple of years, and Berkeley still is only about 10 members behind the entire state of Texas. So we, ha we have a long way to go. But to piggyback on what Senator Selger said, 90% of the college students in Texas are undergraduates. 
and our highest priority still has to be undergraduate education at uh, the uh, associate's level, certification level, the baccalaureate level. And we, we can't lose sight of, of, uh, of that fact. Uh, research is mostly about graduate education, working with graduate students. Uh, there are undergraduates that participate in, in some research, but the focus still has to be on, on undergraduate education. We send about 53, 50% of our high school graduates on to higher education. The, the states that uh, are best educated send about two-thirds of their high school graduates. Our, our completion rates for our universities are still uh, uh, not where they need to be. We've made tremendous improvement, but if you, uh, if you look at our six-year completion rates for baccalaureate degrees are about 60%. If you pull UT Austin and Texas A&M out of the calculation because they're more selective than other institutions and their graduation rates are much higher, our six-year graduation rates for the other universities in Texas are around 53%. We need to do a lot better than that. And uh, we need to, while we focus on research and uh, improving the prestige of our research universities, we still have to place an emphasis on undergraduate education and the kinds of credentials I mentioned. So do you have an interim charge that would focus on that? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I think the uh, 60 by 30 plan, which uh, is uh, one of the interim charges and, and looking at the alignment with K through 12 education. I think uh, the emphasis there is is primarily on improving credentials at the undergraduate level, not exclusively. But I think that uh, the 60 by 30 plan will help us understand that uh, we still have to produce de degrees and credentials at the certificate, associates, and baccalaureate level. You know, I, I'm hopeful that we'll quit talking about this alignment. You know, we always we've been talking about alignment uh, from frankly, from P through 16, P through 18. How long have we been talking about that in higher education now? Uh, as long as I've been here, and that's been like 22 years, and we still hadn't gotten it right. And we're talking about our institutions of education and higher education, trying to get that aligned to make certain we have some sort of seamless um, system, uh, infrastructure at least, in order for people to go from P through 16 or 18. And we still hadn't done that, even though we continue to talk about it. And hopefully, under the leadership of these fine gentlemen, that that, that will come to pass during uh, this interim and next legislative session. So we just won't be talking about it again. We'd be actually doing something about it. Well, and, and what Royce is talking about, I think, points to the fact that there are so many factors involved here. I mean, this is a multifaceted issue. Um, it's not just about outcomes-based funding. It's about what we do up front as well and with That's the right. alignment and so forth. But what I was going to speak to directly was this whole thing of the closing the gaps that we've had in place now for, for quite a few years and have been very successful with. Um, the, the, the issue has been that we were so focused on getting uh, people into the system, we started seeing we need to do more focusing on the persistence and completion because we weren't doing as good a job in that area even though we were getting a lot more people in. That has to do with preparation, for one thing. That has to do with uh, the, the things we were talking about earlier in terms of affordability and how all these new students that we've brought in, especially more students, uh, I don't know what the percentage is exactly, Raymond, but we've, we've had more students uh, from lower income levels, uh, first time attending students from their family, um, 
who have more challenges, perhaps, that we need to be investing in. So all of these things need to be looked at at the same time. And um, I, I know that a lot of the institutions have been working very hard on their uh, persistence and completions, trying to provide supports for students, regardless of whether outcome-based funding, outcome funding is in place or not. And I know uh, UT El Paso has put a lot of things in place to try to help their students, which are oftentimes students who have more challenges, like you were talking about, Kel. Um, and then here at UT Austin, I know that there's been an increase that pre previous President Powers and current President Finvis have had, have had efforts in place to increase completion rates despite ha not having outcomes-based funding in place and are making some headway. There's a lot of challenges here to, to, help, that, to help us achieve those goals. And I, I refer to this a lot in our, our committee hearings. Uh, I've mentioned it several times when we talk about this. And, and we had an example of, of doing outcomes-based funding with uh, some nursing education uh, a couple of years ago uh, to try to get more nurses through the pipeline. And the funding was given upfront to those institutions who had a 70% completion rate, I believe. But anyway, who, who were doing a better job of completion. And those that were not doing as uh, good a job were, were going to have to hit benchmarks along the way before they got their funding. We were successful with that. But I think part of the issue there was pointed out that if you don't have the resources up front, it's very hard sometimes to implement the exact programs that you need in place to help these students be successful. So I think there's just a lot of different ways we have to look at this, and I don't want to just throw all my eggs in one basket here. Well, here's how the alignment target uh, consistently moves. Uh, as we want more and more young people to have access to college, it costs a lot more to, to admit a young person to any college and have to provide that sort of remedial education to bring them up to the standards of that college or university. It doesn't matter whether it's Sol Ross or, or University of Texas, Dallas, that it does that young person that's ready for all those challenges. And, and we have to address it. We need to reduce the amount of remedial education because it's costly, it's not very efficient. Um, but the answer to that in, in large part in this state is a community college system which does so beautifully. Um, but once again, we're asking a lot of it and we're asking them to work very, very hard because that means that, that secondary education in the state of Texas has to work very, very closely to make sure that a credit that's preparatory in high school is absolutely relevant to the curriculum being taught in higher education and community college in this case. And, 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 and I know there's another issue, there's a multitude of issues, yeah. and we get an opportunity to do an interim to talk about it. But it never ceases to amaze me. We spend tax dollars at our, in our public school system, uh, our community college system, and needless to say, in our higher, edu higher education system. Universities. Universities. And for some reason, universities, community colleges, and our public school system can't get on the same page in terms of making certain that whatever is taught in high school is sufficient to go to a community college, then on to a university without the necessity of remediation. Now, don't get me wrong, there will be some remediation, but we still spend too much money on remediation for courses of, oh, making certain students are prepared in order to go on to the next level. And we as the education leaders in, in the state, specifically higher education, also public ed, we need to make certain that we are actually doing something about it, working with the governor's office, of course, as opposed to continuing to just talking about it. Because we are spending too much money on remediation, too many kids are, who want to go on to college 
uh, having to take the uh, assessment examinations in community college, they get stuck in uh, a remediation course and ultimately they decide not to continue their education because of financial reasons and the inability to uh, just frankly go on and finish those assessment courses that they're taking in the community college. It's true, but there are some bright spots there. If you there, look are, at, there are some bright spots. There are. If you look at, at Blinn College with Texas A&M, Amarillo College with, with West Texas A&M, and things like that, they mesh very nicely together. But, but you don't want it that exclusive because you would like kids to go to Dallas Community College to fit right in at University of Texas El Paso, uh, places like that. It, it shouldn't be limited by geography. We, the commissioner and I were at a meeting just last week. Uh, yes. It's a group called Complete College America. It's been around for several years. I think the commissioner was instrumental in the founding of that particular group. And, and we heard a number of things that our, you know, other universities and, and community colleges are doing, in fact, to address this remediation problem. They changed the name of the co-requisite instead of prerequisite. So, but the, the reality is, is same, what, same. what they have done. They have demonstrated clearly that there's a much better completion uh, of people that do have that need for these, what I would call remediation prerequisites, uh, getting through it. And, and you know, the, the numbers are, are really pretty, uh, pretty impressive, actually, and, and just taking a different approach to it. And you know, we heard other things, structured schedules, which we, we passed that here in, in, in Texas. And uh, uh, again, things that we have found really make a difference. And the point clearly being made that you know, if you want a cost-effective associate's degree, do it in 60 hours and not 90 hours. You know, let's stop spending money on, on courses that aren't moving you forward in terms of the attainment of your degree. And you can make that same argument in the university setting. You know, let's get, get what you need to get that degree. Right. And there's probably nothing more cost-effective that, that you can uh, do it in, in that regard. A couple, a couple of points about remediation. We actually, it's important to to give credit to K through 12, the percentage of students coming to our colleges and universities directly out of high school who require remediation has gone down. The bulk of remediation now is, uh, is being done for students who've been out of school a while. It's not students coming to community colleges directly out of high school, it's veterans, it's people who've been uh, working for 10 years, who have been raising families and haven't been in school, they're the ones that are requiring the bulk of remediation now. The other point I wanted to make is that uh, uh, I, I hope that we uh, pay very close attention to the circumstance of community colleges next session. Uh, our community colleges are an incredible educational bargain. Where, to, by comparison, our universities are right at the national average in terms of the cost of tuition and fees. Our community colleges are the third least expensive in the United States. We've got to maintain that low-cost option for our students, particularly the over 60% of students in the K-12 system who are classified as being poor. We've got to make sure that we fund community colleges adequately create incentives for them to do better, but fundamentally so that they can maintain the relatively low cost of access. And I, like many, I think probably suggested an interim charge that we'll see what the speaker comes up with here, but uh, similar to what uh, the commissioner's talking about, we saw a lot of issues this last session with our community colleges in regard to the governance structure. Uh, you know, we have a system with regions of community college districts throughout the state, uh, typically composed of several counties. 
we don't pay for their infrastructure. That's property taxes that do that. Uh, if uh, some of the Counties might opt into that. Some of the taxpayers in some counties may not, and yet they're going to be trying to service that entire region. Uh, you can see some inequities that could occur there. Um, you know, the, the fact that we've relied so much on this workhorse of community colleges to not only help us with preparing students for uh, getting really in alignment with the work source and what, workforce and what we need, uh, but also with HB5 and implementation of the pathways for, for high school graduation. We, we are really relying on the community colleges to step up and have partnerships with our ISDs. Um, again, back to the community colleges, some are in a position because of their taxing structure and what they're getting from the state to be able to offer this tuition free to students in their, in their region. Uh, other community colleges cannot do that. So we have these disparities uh, that exist too in terms of the tuition to the ISDs. Just lots of different issues like that going on. We need to look at it, see what works for the current educational delivery system we have so that we can more effectively and efficiently use our, our community college systems and make sure they get the resources that they need. Well, I think we're gonna start Q&A in just a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask just real quickly, and I'm gonna pick on you a little bit. Um, on campus carry, and I do not want to talk about whether or not campus carry is a good idea or a bad idea, but, but what I wanted to focus on a little bit was whether or not, and I realize this isn't a bill that came through the higher education committees, but it, it, was there enough guidance given in this bill for implementation? I'm speaking specifically of on the public school sector, the idea of um, what percentage of the campus is allowed, what percentage of the campus is discretionary. You on the House floor said, um, as long as it's under 100%, um, then, uh, then, then the campus could have discretion to, to uh, bar guns from other places. And then I also wanted to touch on a little bit, just what are you hearing from maybe private schools within your own districts, the private universities, the presidents have been very confused about what uh, consult with staff and students means to be able to opt out. Well, uh, I, I think it's clear that the private institutions can can just opt out. That's that's I think fairly clear in the bill. I don't know. I don't. Uh, what, the presidents the don't feel clear they, about that. But anyway. in the publics, <laughs> in the publics, clearly that was put in place to uh, give them the discretion as to where it is and is not appropriate to have a, a weapon. Uh, some of those things are already in place, such as the hospital and some of the clinic settings and stuff. Uh, but but I would argue also in in, in other situations where you have. Um, MRIs working in situations that are not clinically related. Uh, the last thing you need is a metal object being whacked into that, that, that MRI machine and you're having some real problems and stuff. So th there are a lot of individual discretions that clearly the university presence needed to take under consideration uh, in order to effectively you know, preserve their mission, protect the people that are there, uh, but at the same time understand and respect what, was, uh, what has become the law of the land. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I think that we, we reached a good place, that I would call it a starting place, yeah. uh, that we're going to have, a, you know, kind of a look back on this uh, during the interim and determine, okay, did we give enough direction or not? Uh, but I think what we did say clearly is, is that our university presidents should have the ability, in a fairly expeditious way, to define uh, where it is appropriate to have and to not have a weapon in the interest of what the university's mission is. The Chancellor of the Texas State System has already impaneled a group 
of his security chiefs and presidents to do this. I believe Admiral McRaven at the University of Texas system has done exactly the same thing. And in this case, I, I agree with Chairman Zerwas. I think we did it precisely the right way. <laughs> to, to give them the discretion, they all have boards of regents and they all have presidents, and see how they interpret it and what they come up with. We can always come back and tweak it, but uh, they know what the law says, and let's see what it is they're, they're going to do with it. It's, it's the law, and uh, let's see where it goes. Let me, but, let, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me ask you this. How many of you think that that law is confusing? Raise your hands. How many of you think it's pretty clear in terms of what your responsibilities are? As uh, administrators, raise your hands. How many of you support the law? Raise your hands. How many of you are against the law? Raise your hands. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, I. I well, it was it's the law. And the point is, it is law of <laughs> but I just I wondered if and, and please tell me if you think I'm wrong. This was not a binding referendum. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> but if it were, <laughs> please, please and please tell me if you think I'm wrong. But it just seemed, you know, in watching the debate in the House and in watching the debate in the Senate, um, it seemed like there was possibly two different sets of legislative intent. In other words, that the House maybe was willing to give more discretion and. Senator Birdwell in the Senate willing to give it. I think that's accurate. And I think what, uh, what my understanding from the House side was at least trying to get some discretion on the part of the leadership of the institutions. I think that uh, the, the issue that I'm hearing right now, though, is as hard as they're trying to do what's right within the law as it's written, is trying to figure out where that sweet space is, mm -hmm. knowing that uh, there's going to be pushback from those that think they've given too much and those that are on the other end of that. Um, you know, but I can't let this pass without reminding everyone that uh, this was something that was opposed by the vast majority of the stakeholders uh, in terms of those that are in administration, the faculty, the students, law enforcement, and yet the law was passed anyway. So I understand it's the law, and I know that we have to work with, uh, with the law as it is, and I think that the institutions are trying in good faith to do that. Uh, but I don't think that, that we should say, expect that uh, people should go away from this thinking that just because it's the law, that it's what, what the vast majority of us actually wanted. But if you look at the statewide polls, the vast majority of people approved. And that's why we come to town to make decisions sometimes that are hard and controversial. Uh, if, if there were two different sort of attitudes here and the House opted for more discretion, it was one of those very rare occasions where the House was correct. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Somebody's tweeting that, right? Um, Only well, I do think that, I do think that the, the circumstance that I saw coming with this is that the likelihood that this law was going to pass without the university presidents having any discretion. Uh, I believe strongly in, in, in the localities having the ability to determine uh, where it's appropriate for this particular law to be in place. Um, and, and I think that we hit a place that at least allows that to happen and to explore that during this interim period of time. We'll come back, we'll look at it, we'll see if, if in fact, uh, as as you know, Vice Chair Howard said, you know, it's, it, it's what's the sweet spot here in terms of making this happen in terms of what was the understanding, the intent of the legislature and what actually has been put in place. I, I think there's, it's quite clear that uh, 
you know, the legislature is not going to smile upon 100% opt-out without there right. being at least some strategic conversation and discussion around this particular issue. I think that's happening, as, as the chairman said. Well, and right I, also, I also believe that you're having all these town hall meetings on these various campuses now, too. And you're getting mixed results in terms of what people are saying. And so I, I firmly believe that legislators will also kind of get an earful from some of those very people that are, are participating in those uh, town hall meetings, too, that will influence their decisions as it relates to this campus carry issue and whether there needs to be any tweaks during the next legislative session. Uh, all right. Well, I think we're ready to open it up for questions. If there uh, anybody has questions or or the score of the Alabama A&M game, they can step <laughs> to the mic. <laughs> and go ahead, sir. Thanks mm -hmm. for coming. My name is uh, Carl Jones. I uh, <clears throat> I live in Spicewood. I, I office in Midland. And, and I'm a little confused about the, uh, the cost of tuition issue. Uh, I'm trying to get my arms around, you know, who do we blame about this? And I guess the way to start this uh, assessment is what percentage of college costs come and tuition costs come from appropriation, what percent from tuition, and what percent of external sources such as foundations and other sources uh, make up the cost structure for uh, tuition. And with that in mind, uh, if tuition costs have gone up over the, the, the near term, over the more recent years, and appropriation levels have gone down, who is to blame here for the, for the, the bulk of this problem in lieu of the composition and the structure of the cost basis? The, uh, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, no, it the, isn't uh, either. No, it isn't. <laughs> um, I, I don't think there's any question that uh, the, the cost of, uh, of doing business at uh, universities and community colleges has gone up dramatically. Uh, there have been opportunities for cost efficiencies uh, that uh, some institutions have taken advantage of. Um, we did a report um, about five years ago at uh, the direction of the governor and found opportunities for reducing uh, uh, costs uh, by 10, 15% at most institutions of higher education. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, legislative appropriations on a student FTE basis have declined. Uh, and uh, that's, that's been a factor. The cost of doing higher education has increased. There's no doubt, for example, uh, the cost of doing research and all the federal regulations, uh, all the, uh, the, all, all the uh, technology that's come into play in higher education has been expensive and it has to be updated constantly. So it's, it's a combination of, of factors. Uh, students are uh, not as well prepared as they, they need to be in order to do college and university work. And Senator Selger talked about the cost of remedial education, which didn't exist uh, 30 years ago. So all of those factors together have driven up the cost of higher education. Can we be uh, more cost efficient than we have been? Absolutely. All of which is not any intention to sort of pass the buck. We can, we can reduce the cost of tuition tomorrow based upon what we appropriate to the formulas for higher education. And, and, and Senator West and, and I were working on that on the last session. And having this discussion 
all along. At the same time, we can provide greater access to students who don't have enough money with Texas grants. And so we sort of are the ones who set the table at the same time. The question goes, who should pay for higher education? To what degree is the responsibility that of the consumers or the rest of the taxpayers in the state? It is not a simple discussion. Next, go ahead, sir. Hi, my name's Cameron Neal. I work for Collin College in Plano. And uh, you're correct in saying community colleges are very cost efficient. Uh, so what are the pros and cons of allowing community colleges to offer more bachelor's degrees? I know that we knew that question was going to come up. Okay. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I, let me give you um, the Dallas story. When the Dallas County Community College District initially came to me and asked me about that, I initially said, no, absolutely not. You have your own mission. Keep your mission. Let the universities do uh, provide the baccalaureate degrees. Uh, over the course of the uh, legislative session, uh, there was continued refinement. In the case of Dallas, Dallas wanted a um, pre-K, it was a pre-K. Early childhood early education. Child, early early childhood child education. education. And so what I told the community college district, it said, now, if the universities uh, will not provide that degree that the community says that they need through their workforce of or petitions or whatever the case may be through governmental agencies or the education uh, community, then uh, I don't have a problem with that. But the reality is, is that I know that during this interim, we're going to be looking at that particular issue. Uh, the fact is that the Senate only approved one bill in Tyler, Texas, uh, that would allow a baccalaureate degree. I think it was a nursing or something. Dental hygiene. Dental hygiene. And because I know that Ellis wanted to try to get one for the Harris County community nursing. College in nursing. Mm -hmm. And, and Austin also. So there, there's going to be a, a, a pretty uh, vibrant discussion concerning that and whether or not there should, in fact, be a pathway for uh, community colleges to offer a limited, hopefully limited, number of baccalaureate degrees and also what the process should be. Thank you. My name is Lena Brewster. I am a professor of government at Blaine College in Bryan. And my question for you is in light of the new campus carry bill, I know on my campus we have one mental health counselor for 16,000 students. Uh, has the legislature had a discussion or is considering implementing any legislation that could possibly provide funding or a mandate to increase the number of mental health counselors? Thank you. No. No. And that being the case, keep in mind that this is only for uh, licensed concealed carry that already have, has some vetting as to mental health and, and, and uh, uh, convictions and things like that. To the degree that vetting has been done, um, and this is particularly in community college, I think 0.6% of the young people will have be both over 21 and have concealed carry. So we're really talking about a very, very small population. In a community college, truly a tiny fraction. We don't know what the implications are right now. But the, the, the idea of, of the need for mental health professionals, separate and distinct from this, this gun carry law, uh, certainly. I mean, we, we have that same issue going on in the, in, the, in the general population and the need to continue to try to enhance uh, mental health services. And there's lots and lots of initiatives going on out there. Uh, the universities are, are, are probably in, in, the, in the community colleges. Uh, probably have a similar need. There's a, there's a lot of circumstances and things that go on. I think we uh, passed a bill that, in fact, I think uh, required some kind of 
uh, at least preliminary uh, you know, uh, exposure of information to students and so forth about the uh, availability of mental health services and stuff. So, so I, I think it's the right track. I just don't think it, it, it necessarily connects with the, with the gun issue personally. That's my and I don't think we appropriated anything related to the gun legislation. So any, any costs associated with the implementation of that, we didn't appropriate any funds to help the institution. Well, but let me say this. And I'm, and I'm kind of thinking back. I know that during the 83rd legislative session, under the guidance of uh, Senator Nelson, who was then chair of Health and Human Services and, and, and Representative Zerwas, didn't we put about three million to three, we, in terms of mental health dollars, in, in terms of creative programs, didn't we come put some extra money in the budget for that particular purpose? And, oh yes, uh, and didn't a substantial we do it also, amount of money. And, money. and we we added to that this legislative this session. session. So so we we have, and then that's just mental that's health right. services in general. And yeah. so there's a bucket of money there that uh, it would behoove those that are dealing with that particular issue to go to the agency and see whether or not they can get grants for specific programs in order to deal with that on college campuses. And I'm sorry, before I, do we have time for one more question? We have time for one more. Go ahead. Sorry. Thanks very much. Uh, John Pitts, um, changing the focus slightly and maybe directing this towards Commissioner Predis, what kind of programs have you seen effective focusing more on the non-traditional student? Well, we, we've seen uh, some institutions uh, implement uh, mentoring programs that have been quite successful in terms of remediation of peer uh, tutoring programs have worked quite well. We've, re we've overhauled uh, developmental education to a large extent. For example, uh, we now have a diagnostic tool to measure exactly the degree of remediation that students need before we only could determine whether students were college ready or not. Uh, we have, uh, we've, for example, been promoting the idea of combining reading and writing into a single uh, developmental ed course instead of separate courses. Uh, those are just some of the things that we've done to, to address the issue you're talking about. Well, thanks very much, everyone, for coming out. Thanks to my guests, Representatives uh, Zerwas and Howard, uh, Senator Seliger and Senator West and Commissioner uh, Paredes. Thanks very much for attending. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you.